children can go to children's church. Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 988. 1 Thessalonians 5. Be reading verse 19. 1 Thessalonians 5. Before we read God's word, let's pray. Almighty God in heaven, you who have given us your Son Jesus to be our Lord and Savior, please work now by your Holy Spirit. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts that we might rightly understand your word and embrace it with faith. Use this time to renew our minds, to give us spirit of faith, to transform us more into the image of your Son. We pray particularly as we ponder this theme of the temple and how Christians are the temple of the Holy Spirit in this present age, uh, please work that uh, you would use that to motivate us to love and good works. Through Jesus we pray, amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. May God give us ears to hear his word. For one reason or another, people can't avoid building temples. Regardless of our religion, gender, age, ethnicity, nationality, hobbies, level of education, political affiliation, whatever, every people group without exception build temples of one sort or another. When most of us think of temples, we probably think initially of religious buildings, religious shrines, maybe the temple of Aphrodite in ancient Greece, the Aztec temple in Mexico, a Hindu temple in India, a Buddhist temple in Tibet, or maybe even a Jewish synagogue, uh, something like Temple Bethel. If we're Christians and if we're familiar with the Bible and Bible history, we might think of Solomon's great temple that he built in Jerusalem, or the temple Jesus visited during his earthly life, or maybe today the Western Wall in Jerusalem where Jews still go to pray. That was actually one of the foundation walls of the temple. Usually we associate temples with religion, but I'd contend uh, that there are, what would you say, secular temples, atheist temples? They don't call them that, but if it looks like a duck and if it walks like a duck, what is it? You look up the definition of temple in the dictionary, and and the dictionary defines a special building reserved for a particular activity. A special building reserved for a particular activity. Defined that way, something like a football stadium is a temple of sorts. And honestly, what you see going on, if you watch football this afternoon, uh, that is in so many respects a worship service in a temple. They don't think of it that way, talk of it that way, but what is it? In a sense, a concert hall is a temple. The stock exchange is a temple. Again, we don't call them temples, but if they're these unique buildings devoted to this particular activity, what are they? It seems almost as if we have an instinct to build temples. Under the right circumstances, they just sort of pop up uh, without even a lot of planning or thinking about it. So, for example, Elvis's home. If you ever visit that, that is a temple to Elvis, uh, without a doubt. Princess Diana's grave. Uh, what did that turn into? But this little shrine where people made pilgrimages. Uh, the place where some famous person gave a speech, or sometimes where somebody was assassinated. These, too, can become temples. Why is it that we humans can't avoid building things? Really think about this. Where does this instinct come from? I mean, animals don't have this instinct. You never see dogs or alligators building temples. So why do humans have this natural instinct to kind of consecrate these places and to set them apart as devoted? 
Well, I'd contend that this is simply one more way that we're created in the image of God. I know that I bring this theme up a lot, but I actually see so many evidences of this everywhere. We're created in the image of God, and because of that, we have this undeniable inclination to worship. Now, we don't often worship the right thing. We don't worship the true God, but we often worship something. We have to worship something, and because of that, we will go around building temples whether we realize they're temples or not. Now, this whole matter of temples and what the temple is, it's actually huge for New Testament Christians to think about because in this particular age, the church age, we do not have a physical temple somewhere. Now, this is one way in which New Testament Christianity differs from all other religions, including Old Testament Judaism. We do not and we should not have a physical temple somewhere in the world. You know, say a bunch of Christians got together and said, hey, we're going to pool our money and we're going to build this glorious temple in Grand Rapids. Uh, We should not participate in that. Uh, that, that's entirely misguided. Instead, as I'm going to try and show you this morning from Scripture, all believers in Jesus are God's temple. I know that sounds odd because, you know, I'm not made out of bricks and stone and gold, but nonetheless, viewed properly, every Christian is a temple of God's Spirit. And just like the temple throughout the entire Bible is where God met with people, now in this age, it's in Christians, in churches, that God meets with people. And understanding a bit of this reality and living in light of this reality is going to be the burden of our study this morning. Well, it's with this that we continue on in our series entitled, Your Relationship with the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is Sermon 7, and I'm going to try and limit myself to two more messages. Some of you have mentioned that this has been a profoundly helpful series, praise God, but at the same time, I can't really belabor a theme when other things could be talked about. So, Lord willing, two more sermons. What motivated this entire series was this verse in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the spirit. When in my study I came to this verse, the thought struck me, I don't know if we really understand enough about who the Holy Spirit is and his ministries to even put that verse into practice, to even make sense of that verse. So for the last seven sermons, we've been laying a foundation, who is the Holy Spirit, what does he do, so that ultimately we can put verse 19 into practice. In this series, I know we've talked about an awful lot. We've talked about the way in which the Holy Spirit is a divine person, the second person of the Trinity with whom you should seek to have a relationship. We've talked about the way in which the Spirit's ministries, they really changed and, and for lack of a better word, amped up on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Now all believers get to share in the fullness of the Spirit. We've talked about his ministries of conviction, of regeneration, of sealing, of illumination. And we've spent a lot of time talking about you, if your hope is in Jesus, should learn how to be sensitive to the Spirit's work in your life and align your life to his leading. That's where we've been by the grace of God. And I know I say this almost every time we talk about this topic, but if you haven't been here for some of these messages, I'd strongly encourage you to listen to them or watch them. Again, not because I'm such an eloquent preacher, because I'm not, but because it would be to your advantage to learn what the Bible has to say about the Holy Spirit so as to walk in the Spirit. Now, like I said, today we're going to be talking about this entire matter of what it means that believers are temples of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? And how should that affect the way that we live? Let's begin by asking the question, what is the temple of God? We've got to start here for this conversation to make any sense at all. What is the temple of God? And to answer this question, I'd invite you to take a look up here on the wall at verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 3. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, the Apostle Paul says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Now, there are several things I want you to notice about this verse. First, look at that phrase, do you not know? It's interesting, Paul uses that phrase several times in his epistles, and basically what he says, do you not know, is, come on guys, you should know this by now. 
Uh, this is basic Bible doctrine. These are things that all believers ought to know. This, this is stuff you shouldn't be unclear about. Keep that in mind whenever you come across that phrase. And again, Paul uses it a lot in his letters. Uh, it's almost a rebuke. You guys should know better by now. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple? Now, clearly here, he's using metaphorical kind of spiritual language. Humans, you know, hopefully you know this, humans are not buildings. We're not bricks and mortar and stone and gold, that sort of thing. And yet the realities signified by the temple are true, nonetheless, in believers. Now, take a look at that word temple there. In the New Testament, there are actually two different Greek words for temple, both of which are translated by our English word temple. I know that this... Put your thinking cap on here, because I'm talking about something that actually has some significance, but this might sound a little heady for a second. Two different Greek words, New Testament was written in Greek, for temple, both translated by our English word temple. The first Greek word for temple referred to the entire temple complex. Now, if you remember the temple in Jerusalem, it was this massive thing. I mean, it was almost like a shopping mall. Uh, you know, courtyards, all sorts of rooms. I mean, everything covered with gold, gigantic steps. I mean, fires here and there, all sorts of priests. I mean, there'd be dozens of people milling around. I mean, it was this huge complex. So the first word for temple refers to that entire gigantic multi-acre thing. The second word for temple refers only to that little sort of box where they made the sacrifices. Uh, you know, I realize I'm sort of assuming some knowledge here, but there's the holy place, the most holy place. That one kind of room was the second word for temple. Now, of these two words, which do you think Paul uses here when he says, we are the temple of God? Is it the entire complex or just that place where the priest met with God? Which do you think it was? It's actually the second word, that place where people meet with God. That's the word that he uses here. And as you can see, he says, you are God's temple. You are that place where God now dwells with and meets with people. The rest of verse 16 is why we are God's temple. What's the reason for this? Again, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? This is so important. This is the reason why we're God's temple. Not because we look so beautiful. Uh, not because we're so intelligent or because we wear so much bling or anything like that. No, the reason why we're God's temple is because God's spirit dwells in us. This gives us a key to the significance of the earlier temples, what was going on there. God's spirit dwelt in them. And really, at the end of the day, that's what makes a temple a temple, not so much its external fashion. Commenting on this reality, Gregory Lockwood writes this. Like the temple of the Old Testament, constructed with gold, silver, and precious stones... Believers in Jesus are a precious divine sanctuary. Just as the glory of God dwelt in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, so for Paul, the church is now the place where God's glory dwells. God's sanctuary was no longer a structure made of stones, it was a spiritual house inhabited by the Spirit of God, just as he indwelt each individual Christian. If the Corinthians would only be conscious of their significance as God's sanctuary, the dwelling place of the Spirit, they would want to adorn it and build it up with their finest contributions, rather than tearing it apart. Now this is a reality that's true for all of you if your faith is in the Lord Jesus. One of the blessings purchased by Jesus for all of his people is that now the second person of the Trinity dwells within your soul. If you really get that, that will blow your mind. And this is something that is true whether you realize it or not, feel it or not, sense it or not. I mean, you may have never even heard of this concept till just now, but if your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, the Holy Spirit is living within you right now. This ministry of the Spirit was actually promised in the Old Testament, back in Ezekiel 36. 
It's part of the new covenant. God promised this, Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. That this is something that all believers benefit from and not just, say, super Christians, not just you know, missionaries or evangelists, is clear from Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. I say it again, if your hope is in the Lord Jesus, if you have turned from your sins and you're relying on his death and resurrection to make you right with God, God's Spirit lives within you. And part of growing as a Christian is kind of figuring out what that means and how to walk in line with the Spirit. What are some of the indicators that the Spirit's dwelling within me? Well, first, he's the one that gave you faith to believe the gospel in the first place. I mean, we talked about this earlier in our sermon on regeneration, but that's really where the Spirit's work begins. Not after I trust in Jesus, but opening my eyes, opening my heart, that I would cast my hope on Jesus. That's the Spirit's work. But from there, any desire you have to walk with Jesus, any degree of fruit of the Spirit born in your life, any desire to read the Bible, tell others about God's praises, all of that and so much more is the Spirit at work in your life. I mean, you could think about it as bluntly as this. If you woke up this morning still wanting to follow Jesus, that desire is there. I mean, where did that desire come from? The devil's not going to plant that in your heart. We know that the flesh is opposed to God. He's not going to plant, you know, the flesh isn't going to plant that in your heart. If you woke up this morning still wanting to follow Jesus, that came from the Spirit dwelling within you. And the more you come to realize this, the more appreciative you can become for all that the Spirit's doing in your life. Just like Paul says of the Corinthians, he says of you, you are God's temple. God's Spirit dwells within you. All that's communicated, foreshadowed, indicated in the Old Testament, that's true in your life if you're a believer in Jesus. Now, for a few minutes here, I want to go backwards in time. I want to go back into the Old Testament to understand what was going on with the temple, because I think this will highlight for us and help us understand what it means that we are the temple. To really get this, you've got to go back to the very beginning, actually back to the Garden of Eden. You know, if somebody asked you, where did the idea of the temple begin? You might think, okay, you have a tabernacle? Actually, no. Go back to the Garden of Eden. Remember, in the Garden of Eden, God makes Adam and Eve, he puts them in the garden, and in that particular context, call it that slide if you would, in that particular context, Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship. You'll remember, God came down in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve would walk with God, unhindered fellowship, everything was perfect. Realize that becomes sort of the paradigm for the temple throughout the entirety of Scripture. As I imagine you know, soon after creation, Adam sinned. He ate from that forbidden fruit, and instantly what happened, you've got to almost imagine it as if the temple was obliterated. A wall was created between humans on earth and God in heaven. Uh, a separation. Sin always separates, it always destroys our relationship with God, and that's what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, that beautiful temple relationship was obliterated. That's the way things would have remained eternally had God not acted in grace. Well, let's fast forward the story a little bit. Jump with me to the year 1400 B.C. In 1400 B.C., it really gets going with something called the tabernacle. The tabernacle. And what the tabernacle is, do you remember this? I remember in Sunday school, we used to have these flannel graph stories and build little temples, and it was, it was really cool, um, but I didn't really get the significance of what we were doing. What the tabernacle in part was, was kind of a partial restoration of the relationship humans had with God in the Garden of Eden. Uh, so what they did, they built this, basically a gigantic tent. 
Uh, tabernacle is actually just an old-fashioned word for tent, uh, made out of badger skins and goat hides and everything. And the people of Israel, they'd literally like pack it up. They'd take down the poles, they'd fold it up, they'd go to a new part on their place on their journey, they'd set it all up again. But the idea here was that in the tabernacle, God would come down and relate with people. It's as if that separation between heaven and earth would be sort of temporarily peeled back in the tabernacle and God and man could fellowship in in an unhindered way. Listen to this description of the tabernacle in Exodus 29 and 42. There Moses writes, You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tabernacle and wash them with water. At the entrance of the tabernacle before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This tabernacle, it was really the way in which God met with the children of Israel for about 400 years. From about 1400 BC till about 1000, this was where if you wanted to interact with God, you went to the tabernacle. We'll jump forward again a few hundred years to about 1000 BC. In 1000 BC, King Solomon, he does something rather revolutionary. He turns the tabernacle into a temple. So he basically takes a tent and turns it into a palace. Uh, And you'll remember, if you've read the descriptions of the temple, they were glorious. I mean, huge, everything's covered with gold. I mean, there's statues and candelabras and priests everywhere. It, It must have been truly glorious. I mean, especially... Imagine covered with gold and shining in the Middle Eastern sun. But the point was the same. This is where God would meet with people. Again, you've got to imagine it. God in heaven, us here on earth, there's a separation. But in the temple, in the tabernacle, again, it's as if that separation is peeled back and a portal is created where God can now dwell with man and we with God. This is the way things would be for hundreds of years until Jesus was born. And listen to this description of Jesus, John 1.18. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, you want to know something interesting? That term dwelt among us, you may have heard this before, it's literally the word tabernacled. The word tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So everything that the the tabernacle, the temple represented, God dwelling with humans, that was true to the ultimate degree in Jesus. Jesus is God himself, literally walking among us. Though Adam's sin destroyed the relationship, God is taking the initiative to restore that relationship, so much so that he himself will come down from heaven and take on human flesh. And do you remember what Jesus said about himself? It's interesting to think of how he called himself the temple on more than one occasion. John 2.19, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Ultimately, Jesus, the temple, loved us so much that he laid down his life for us on the cross. The temple was nailed to the cross, and in so doing, he gave up his life as a ransom for many. He purchased people for God from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And do you remember what happened the moment Jesus died? What happened to that curtain in the literal temple? This isn't a coincidence. Mark 1537, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It's interesting that there's significance even in the fact that it's torn top from bottom, indicating that it's God initiating this tearing of the veil. 
So this is what we're gradually coming to see. In the Bible, the temple is really, again, not so much a structure, but it's God dwelling among his people. It's God piercing that separation between heaven and earth to walk among us, to dwell among us, to relate with sinners. Well, after his death and after his resurrection, Jesus went back to heaven, but before he went back to heaven, he made this promise. John 14, 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you will know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. After Jesus ascended back to heaven, we come to what we call the church age, the present age. And during this age, where's the temple now? Again, it's not some building, it's not in Jerusalem, it's not the tabernacle wandering around the wilderness. No, it's you and me. And, and again, this, if you get this, this will blow your mind. We are to be that portal between heaven and earth. We're, we're to kind of, not by anything that we do, but just by virtue of the fact that the Spirit dwells in us. Now that separation between God and heaven and humans here on earth is peeled back through our lives, through the Spirit at work in us bearing fruit. It says God himself is coming down to dwell in, in, among us. If we jump forward to the future, I know that Kevin already read this passage, but Jesus is going to come again. He's going to create the new heavens and the new earth, and in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more temple. But why is that? Listen to Revelation 21.1. Pardon me, 22.1. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So here's what happens. In that future, in the new heavens and the new earth, that separation is totally obliterated. Now God in heaven, now humans in the new, new, in the new heavens and the new earth perfectly fellowship and perfectly relate. And that's really where the reality of the temple is brought to its completion. So this idea of the temple, it's a big deal. It's really one of the great themes that holds the entirety of the Bible together. It's the theme of God walking among us, God himself coming down, piercing the separation between heaven and earth, being among sinners. It begins in Garden of Eden, prefigured in the tabernacle, prefigured in the temple, realized fully in Jesus, present now in the lives of believers, and will be completely restored in the new heavens and the new earth. You follow that? Now, this might seem a little interesting and all, but you could be sitting there thinking, okay, so what? You know, who cares? What's really the significance of this? Let's consider now a second question. If all believers are temples of the Holy Spirit, how then should we live? How should I live? If I am indwelt by God's Spirit, if I am, again, that place where heaven and earth are kind of peeled back now, how should I live? Let me give you four applications of this idea. Four applications. First, what this means, bring up that slide if you would, trips to the Holy Land, well, certainly educational and helpful from a historical perspective, won't necessarily bring you closer to God. And in a way, we should be particularly thankful for this, given the present conflict that's going on. Trips to the Holy Land, while certainly educational and helpful from a historical perspective, won't necessarily bring you closer to God. You know, making a journey to modern-day Jerusalem, to see the Dome of the Rock, to see the Western Wall, uh, to actually walk on some of the steps that they think Jesus stepped on, that is very interesting. I, my father and I took a tourist trip to Israel in 1998, um, and admittedly, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, to see like the valley where David and Goliath fought, the, to be familiar with the geography, I mean, there is definitely educational benefit in that. And if things calm down, and one day you can make a trip to Israel to see those things, you, you might want to take advantage of it. It's very helpful. 
Yet without a doubt, get this, you can be a very happy, contented, joyful, growing, fruitful Christian if you never leave Muncie, Indiana. If you never set foot in Jerusalem, the reason for that is because that entire system has passed away and has been replaced by God dwelling among us by his Holy Spirit. I find it interesting that when Paul wrote all of his letters, the Jewish temple was still standing in Jerusalem. And yet, not once does he tell any of the believers to go make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to visit the temple. I mean, check any of the letters, the Corinth, the Ephesians, Colossians, Rome, uh, none of them. You know, he, he could have said, y'all pack up a church field trip, you know, hire a church bus, uh, go to Jerusalem, but he never does that. Not once in the entire New Testament are we told to visit the Holy Land. Instead, the entire New Testament emphasis is, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells among you by indwelling you in your soul. So again, if things ever calm down and you can go to Jerusalem, go visit the Holy Land, it, it is beneficial. But do not think that that will somehow magically draw you closer to God. No, in reality, you're closer to God here in a Christian church, hearing God's words, singing God's praises, fellowshipping with the people of God, than you would be standing at the Western Wall. Second application. We should never think of any physical structure in this world as our temple. We should never think of any physical structure in this world today as our temple. You've probably heard churches call their church buildings temples. Uh, you know, from time to time I'll be driving, you know, across Indiana and come across, you know, uh, the Baptist Heritage Temple. Uh, or, you know, sometimes they get kind of curious names, you know, Lion of the Tribe of Judah Tabernacle. Um, I don't find that particularly helpful because I do think it often brings with it some of the Old Testament thinking about buildings and structures, it communicating the idea that God lives in this building, that this is where God dwells. A variation on this thinking um, I've encountered as a pastor, people think it's especially bad to sin in God's house. Uh, you know, to cuss out in the world, if I cuss at, say, Walmart, no big deal, but if I cuss in God's house, I'm really in trouble. Have you ever encountered people that think that way? Obviously, I'm not encouraging cussing anywhere, um, but it, you know, this building, truth be told, is merely a rain shelter. We, we could do church meeting in a barn. Uh, Lord willing, when we have our baptism service, it might not be in this building, but it will be Trinity Baptist Church nonetheless. <sighs> Additionally, I do think that this should move us to think through how much money we devote to the beauty and the aesthetics of a church building. Uh, you know, we're all about comfortable chairs and air conditioning and indoor plumbing. I'm not cr criticizing any of that. But if you think about those medieval cathedrals that would have cost like trillions of dollars and taken hundreds of years to build, I tend to think that some of that was motivated by a misunderstanding here. I think they thought they were building a temple. And, and again, I, something like Notre Dame is beautiful, uh, but I think that money could have been much more wisely spent, say, on global missions or helping the poor than on just beautifying earthly buildings. Just something for you to think about. Be careful of viewing any physical structure in this world today as our temple. For again, we believers are God's temple because we're indwelt by God's Spirit. Let me give you a third application. If the church is the temple in this present age, that means the church is really, really important to God's plan. If the church is the temple in this present age, that means the church is really, really important to God's plan. I mean, in one sense, when you trace the history of the Bible, uh, it is almost like the history of the temple. If that's the case, then right now the church is where the action is at. The church is where God is making himself known today. Infinitely more important than secular politics. 
infinitely more important than, say, influencing culture or humanitarian work or scientific research or saving the environment. Building the church is what God is all about today. And that takes place through rather simple things like teaching the Bible, proclaiming the gospel, Christians loving one another and building one another up in the faith. That's how important the church is to God. But the question becomes, is that church important to me? Is the church as important to me as it is to God? Think about what the Spirit says in Ephesians 3.10. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. That's a fascinating verse, because in context, those rulers and authorities in heavenly places are probably angelic demonic forces. But through the church, God is making his wisdom displayed. Again, you get that, that will blow your mind regarding what we're doing here. This is not just like nice little religious people playing nice religious games, singing nice religious songs. We're putting the wisdom of God on display so that angels and demons would stand in awe. And again, if you get that, that will totally change your perspective on everything that we do. God is building his church through simple, ordinary churches like this one, as imperfect as we are. God is spreading his glory over this earth through simple, imperfect Christians, as imperfect as you and I are. But again, the point is, is the church as important to me as it is to God? Is my life, regardless of my vocation, even if I'm a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, do I still see, at the end of the day, my purpose as doing what I can to help build up the church and to spread God's glory through the church? That's really what I'm getting at. So is the church that important to you? Let me give you a fourth and final application. Continually thinking of yourself as the temple of the Holy Spirit is key living a godly life. If you're a believer in Jesus, this obviously applies only to those who have put your hope in the Lord Jesus, but continually thinking of yourself as the temple of the Holy Spirit is key to godly living. Now, I find it interesting that when Paul brings up the temple, the idea that, the idea that believers are the temple, it's usually to motivate them to godly living. It's not to feel like, you know, I'm so special or I'm so wonderful or something like that. It's more to convict you that how you're currently living now is not consistent with your identity as God's temple. For example, in 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul writes this, flee sexual immorality. Is sexual immorality a problem in our world today? Absolutely. But it's interesting, Paul's solution is, is not temporal, but it's to get your identity as the temple of God. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Maybe for some of us who are struggling with sexual sin, the real key to getting some growth and victory there is more deeply appreciating the fact that we're indwelt by God's Spirit and that we're God's temple. You can imagine what I'm getting at this way, and, and I'll be honest, this, when I'm conscious of it, this changes my life. When I forget about it, uh, it, it like loses all of its power, sadly. But here's the way it kind of works. Imagine you had a house guest staying with you in your home. Ever had that happen? we all have. But this house guest is kind of unique in that they always follow you around everywhere. Uh, they always sit with you while you're talking to your spouse, talking to your kids. They can always see what you're watching on the TV, see what you're looking at on the internet. Uh, they're, they're observing you with you all the time, this particular house guest. Now, if you had such a house guest living with you, uh, would your behavior be a little different? I mean, come on, be honest. We, we do tend to act differently when we have house guests over, don't we? 
If you had a house guest sitting in your living room, you probably wouldn't watch certain things on the TV that you'd watch if you were all alone. If you had a house guest over, you probably wouldn't scroll through things on the internet that you sometimes scroll through that, you know, when you think you're all alone. Uh, you probably wouldn't speak so impatiently to your kids, speak so impatiently to your spouse. You follow me? Because you've got this guest there and you want to be on your best behavior. Well, here's the reality of it. If we believe what the Bible is saying is true, the Holy Spirit is that house guest who's always there with us. He's seeing what we see. He hears what we listen to. He notices how we address our spouse, how we speak to our kids. And shame on us if we're more afraid of some earthly human house guest than the Holy Spirit dwelling in our souls. Rebecca Pippert writes this in her book on evangelism. I found this quote helpful. She says, to walk in the Spirit is simply the discipline of calling to mind the truth that God is with us and His Spirit dwells within us. It is vital that we acknowledge throughout the day and moment by moment this one tremendous fact, there is another who dwells within me. Again, when I've been conscious of this, this has absolutely changed my life. And there have been times when I'm like, okay, there is the Spirit dwelling right in here right now. When I'm aware of that, I'm almost like terrified to sin. Because how, how dare I do something that would bring shame on the Spirit living within me? But again, when I sort of forget this, and it, it, it's so easy to do, you know, you, we're never as cognizant of the reality, the spiritual realities of the Bible that we, we, we'd like to be. But there are times it just sort of fades, and I forget about it, and next thing you know, sin becomes so, so easy. So brothers and sisters, let's do all that we can to increase this awareness that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is 24-7 dwelling in your soul, that you can grieve him, that you can quench him, that again, he sees what you see, hears what you listen to, he, he knows the words that's coming out of your mouth. And again, why would we ever want to do anything that would bring grief into the Spirit's heart? In your daily prayers, pray, Lord, I thank you that I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. I thank you that the Spirit dwells within me. But help me throughout today to be aware of that and to live accordingly. Maybe insert regular reminders of this throughout your day. Maybe write on a 3x5 card. You know, something like 1 Corinthians 3.15. Carry it around in your pocket and read it from time to time. Maybe, you know, set an alarm every two or three hours. And when it goes off, pray, Lord, help me to be very aware of the fact that the Spirit's dwelling within me and that I don't want to do anything that would grieve that indwelling Holy Spirit. Maybe you can think of other ways to make yourself more aware of this, but brothers and sisters, pray for yourself. Pray for one another here. Pray for your pastor that we would develop this more conscious awareness that the Spirit's always with us because I think if we get that, that will motivate us to love and good works. We'll wrap up our time this morning. This then is just a very quick summary of what the Bible teaches about the temple of God. In this particular age, we who believe on the Lord Jesus are the temple. Again, it's as if that barrier between heaven and earth is peeled away and God himself is dwelling among us. And in closing, the question I want us to consider is how does somebody become part of this temple? How does somebody go from being an enemy of God, separated from God, cast out of his presence, to all of a sudden God dwelling in that person? How does that happen? Well, the simple answer is, believe the gospel. That's how you, if right now you're an enemy of God outside of his kingdom, that's how you, within a few minutes, can become the temple of the living God. The Christian gospel tells us that you were made to know God. Everybody made to know God. I love 
One of the cool things about being a pastor for a good number of years is that certain things that early on you don't appreciate, you grow in your appreciation of it. And the fact that I get to tell people every single week that you were made to know God, I've just that, that has brought so much joy to my heart. Especially in this world where people have no idea why they're here, what they're living for. They think they're just here to have as much fun as possible and then die, and then, you know, that's the end of that. To tell people, no, you were made to know God, I love that. That brings me joy. And I, I mean, there's a lot more to the gospel than just that, but that truth alone, I love telling people. You were made to know God, and yet, all of us have rejected that purpose. We've rebelled against our Creator. We've sinned. We've broken God's laws. At root, what we've said is, God, I don't want you running my life. I want to live my own life. I don't want you messing with my life, telling me what to do. Thank you very much. Buzz off. All of us, without exception, have done that. Now, God is righteous and holy, and realize he could have said, you don't want me? That's fine. Be lost forever. Be cut off from my presence forever. And yet God is so rich in mercy. God is so full of steadfast love that he didn't say that. Instead, he took the initiative to reconcile himself to us, to reconcile us to him, and to heal that relationship that we destroyed. God the Father sent God the Son down from heaven. God the Son took on human flesh, given the name Jesus. He's a little infant, grows up, goes through all the different phases of human development, just like you and I do. Tempted, like we are, but doesn't sin. As a relatively brief ministry in his 30s of teaching, healing, performing miracles, casting out demons, confronting religious hypocrisy, but then he dies on the cross. And what's going on on the cross? He's taking the judgment our sins deserve. The judgment we deserve for telling God to buzz off, that is poured out on Jesus. He is pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He becomes a curse for us on the cross, bearing entirely the judgment our sins deserve, such that there's nothing left for us to pay. Three days later, God the Father raises Jesus back from the dead to demonstrate that what I'm telling you right now is true. He ascends to heaven, he sits down at God's right hand, and then he pours out his Holy Spirit. And now he's invited all of us, every last one of us, turn from sin, embrace me, be made right with God. Stop running from God. Stop telling God to buzz off. Rely on my death and resurrection and enter back into that relationship with God you were created for in the beginning. This is the Christian gospel. This is why Jesus came down from heaven, to reconcile man to God, and more than that, that we might become the temple of God in this present age. So trust Jesus now. Trust him now, and as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, would need clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, talk to me after the service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust the Lord Jesus today, and today, right now, become the temple of the living God. Let's pray. Oh God, the love you have for sinners is so remarkable. Lord, I remember as a kid hearing older saints describe your love as so beautiful and amazing, and I thought they were faking it. I thought they were just being melodramatic. Um, but Lord, the more we dig into it, the more we read the scriptures and reflect on the greatness of your love, it really is shocking to think that you would so love sinners, sinners that rejected you, sinners that deserve hell, sinners that didn't want to have anything to do with you. You nonetheless loved them and did everything that we might be reconciled to you and not just reconciled to you, become your sons. Not only that, become temples of the Spirit, shining your glory into this world. Lord, please move us that we might stand in even greater awe of such love. Lord, for any within the hearing of my voice who have not yet turned from sin and trusted in Jesus, please work in their hearts right now. Right now, Lord, by your Spirit, give them gifts of conviction, 
drawing, regeneration, faith, repentance. Uh, please, O oh Lord, save as a result of this message. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.